As we think about that command from Jesus, we are forced to ask ourselves our, this question, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? Who is your enemy? We may be insulated as Americans and we still kind of have holdovers from our, our southern culture of niceness. You may think, well, I don't really have any enemies. I, I'm, I love everybody. I'm, I'm not angry with anybody. I, I love everyone. Well, Stephen Christie's situation reminds us of brothers and sisters who face real enemies who want to do them harm. Uh, and so I, I want us to, in one sense, capture the, the radical nature of Jesus' command to love your enemies. But then in the sense of these are people seeking to do you harm. I mean, consider some, some news stories recently. Uh, I heard about a, a man who accidentally fired his gun in his, uh, in his apartment room and it went through the floor and hit a 10-year-old g- girl in the stomach. How would you feel towards someone who did something like that? That happened to your, your little one. Or the, the one who killed several people at a, a newsroom recently. If, if someone did harm to your family, those closest to you, how would you feel towards them? And what would you want to do to them? What would you want to say about them? Those sorts of things reveal something about who we are. They, they reveal something about our heart, about our character. It's one thing to love people who love you and are kind to you and do kind things to you. But how you respond to those who seek to do you harm, well, that's something totally different, isn't it? So don't, don't lose the sense of the radical nature of this command. And yet at the same time, I want you to think about the fact that you have what we could call temporal enemies. These, these kind of lower level things. If we are to love those who seek to do us harm, how much more ought we to love those who annoy us or cut us off in traffic or the neighbor who plays his music too loud and lets his dog into your yard? The person who has 30 items in the express check, checkout lane at the grocery store and gets in front of you and you're in a hurry and you can't get out of there. Or maybe it's the family member who always seems to try and hurt you. Your, your enemy is that person you have a hard time forgiving. Or you look at them and this, this low-level growl just comes over you. Grr. Who, who is it that is your enemy? And as we're, we're tempted to think about this, kids, you can even think about this, right? The kid who picks on you, the kid who's mean to you, who steals your toys. How do you respond to those people? And wh- how, do, how do we talk about our enemies? Right? We, we, we do like to talk about the person who cut us off or the person who did this to us. We want to share our, we want to vent a little bit. We want to go on a rant talking about our enemies. Well, the interesting thing here is that Jesus actually encourages us to talk about our enemies, only not in the way we're used to. Talk about our enemies to God, to lift them up in prayer. So this is the the command that we'll be looking at this morning. And Nick Lingle last week encouraged us to pray for someone in our church or a brother or sister over the next 30 days. to com- he, he, he preached on praying for others, in particular, struggling in prayer for one another. How it's hard work, but it's a necessary and helpful 
work. Well, if it's difficult to keep that sort of commitment, how much more difficult is it for us to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us or seek to do us harm? Well, the context of our passage is similar to what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember from two weeks ago, we considered the Lord's Prayer. And this, in this larger section, it's being demonstrated that Jesus, the Messiah from God, teaches not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus has authority in and of himself to teach. He doesn't have to reference some other teacher. Notice in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, that Jesus has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And he says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then in verses 21 to 48, Jesus is establishing this standard of righteousness which is required of those who wish to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here, In other words, here's what that standard of righteousness looks like. There are six statements in these verses. We could call them the you have heard them said statements. I tried to think of a really neat way of saying that, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> but there are six of these statements, and Jesus presents, in these, Jesus presents the accepted wisdom concerning righteousness, but then he corrects it, saying, but I say to you, and then giving the real requirement of righteousness. So look at each of them, and you can see it yourself. In verse 21, he addresses anger. In verse 27, he addresses lust. In verse 31, divorce. In verse 33, the swearing of oaths. In verse 38, retaliation. And in verse 43, we have our text concerning loving your enemies. So in our passage, Jesus states the accepted wisdom, then corrects it with a better command. This is the righteousness which is required of you. And he gives reasons why it's better. So we'll do two things in this passage. First, We'll simply walk through the text, and I'll give the sense and the meaning. And secondly, and perhaps a little more briefly, we'll look more closely at this command to pray for those who persecute you. To pray. What does it mean to pray for your enemies? So look first at the accepted wisdom Jesus rejects. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first part of this statement would have been well known. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In Luke 10, a man asks Jesus, What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies to him, What do you think? What is written in the law? And he responds with these two great commandments Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the Jewish leaders had gradually distorted this command to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor ended up being love your fellow faithful Jew. Love those who are good and worthy of love. Love those who who are godly and love God. Love those who can love you back. And since the Gentiles were godless people, since they were unconcerned with the things of God, the Jews owed nothing to them. They had to love their neighbor, yes, but you can hate your enemy. It is somewhat attractive, isn't it? Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. If that was a command in Scripture that we could get away with. 
If you only have to love those you deem worthy of love, then you don't have to love this category of people who aren't worthy. Maybe for you they're godless liberals or unjust politicians, the racists, illegal immigrants, drug-dealing thugs. Do you have any responsibility to love those sorts of people? Or can they just be put in a category where we have no responsibility for them? Well, who is it that you are tempted to hate? Or we could put it in a different way. Who is it that you are tempted to look upon with self-righteous judgment? Who is it that you look like and you say, I'm really glad I'm not like that person? Or how could, how could the per, that person be like that? How could he do that? I would never be like that. But Jesus shocks us and says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This command sounds like the, the command you give your kids when you tell them to apologize for hurting their brother, right? You, can't, you, can, you can get a child to say, I'm sorry, Will you please forgive me? But you can't make them feel the appropriate remorse that they ought to feel. You can't make them do what you're telling them to do outwardly. You're commanded to love your enemies. But how do you stir that up within yourself? How do you stir this love for the people who want to hurt me? How do you stir that up in, your, up in yourself? I think part of the answer, and this is not the whole answer, I'll preface it that way, Part of the answer is that you do it even if you don't feel like it. (laughs) Because you know this is what God commands me to do. You know what love looks like, so you go ahead and do the loving thing even though you don't feel like it. And you say, God, please forgive me because I know that this is not what you desire. And you do the loving thing anyway. I've pointed out before that love is a positive command. Loving your neighbor isn't fulfilled by the absence of ill will toward them. It requires an action on your part. But it also requires more than that. Not only does Jesus say we must love our enemies, he says we must pray for them. Think about how that requires something more than just doing good to others. We must pray for those who persecute us and seek to do us harm. This requires that we not only do loving things for them, but that we actually have loving affections for them. I can do kind things for someone and still hate them in my heart. But to pray for someone requires a heart of love for them. Because you can't hide hatred from God, right? You're going to God, the Father, in prayer. You can't hide that from the all-knowing God. So to obey this command to pray for your enemies means rooting out the bitterness and hatred in your own heart before bowing the knee in prayer to, to God. And Jesus, look, gives us a reason for this command in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And this gets back to the question, how do you make yourself love someone, especially your enemy? Maybe some of you remember the song performed by Bonnie Raitt called, I Can't Make You Love Me. You remember that song? It's a terrible song. It really sticks in your mind. So go home, 
search it on YouTube and it'll be locked in over and over and over. So you're welcome for that. But in perfect country music fashion, the idea for the song came to the author while he read an article about a man who was arrested after getting drunk and shooting his girlfriend's car. And the judge asked him if he had learned anything from the ordeal to which he said, I learned, Your Honor, that you can't make a woman love you if she don't. You can't, I can't make you love me if you won't. Friends, that is a humor, humorous story, but it reminds us of a serious biblical truth. You can't make your heart love God if it don't. The scripture teaches us that because of sin, we do not love God naturally in and of ourselves. In fact, we are in bondage to sin from birth. And the scripture teaches by ourselves, we are unable to love God. You are unable to love your neighbor. And absolutely, you are unable to love your enemy in and of yourselves. But in this very thing in which we have failed and in which we continue to fail, consider Christ who has succeeded perfectly in this righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the law of God first by loving his Father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. Every ounce of Jesus' being loved his Father to the fullest. The kind of love we should have had for God. Jesus fulfilled it. And he loved his neighbor as himself. When he was a kid, he never responded wrongly to other kids who abused him or hurt him. He always loved perfectly. And he even loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. You have to wonder, as Jesus said these words, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If he pondered what it would be like when he would be persecuted later on in his life by lawless people. Remember, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was brutally beaten. He suffered even though he was innocent. He was crucified between two criminals. And as he hung there on the cross... What did he do? He prayed for those who persecuted him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. What love and tenderness must have been required for that. What feelings of affection for those who were doing him harm must Jesus have had. But if you know the gospel story, you know it isn't just those enemies that Jesus loved. Apart from the grace of God, you are an enemy of God. It's hard for anyone, I would think, in America to say, I'm an enemy of God. I've never opposed Him. I, sure, I sin. Everybody sins. But does that make me an enemy of God? But the Scripture says of all of us, as Bo pointed out this morning, all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the scripture says of you, Christian, of you who have put your faith in Christ, that at the right time, while you were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Doesn't the scripture say of you that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? Well, what is an ungodly person and a sinner except an enemy of God? The fully righteous and holy God of all the universe cannot tolerate sin in his presence. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't ever begin to think that Christ died for you because of some glimmer of hope or potential that he had seen in you. Because you believe, he believed that you could somehow be better and worthy of his love. That there was something inside of you which caused him to have mercy upon you. Before his grace came to you, you were an enemy of God. If a person's unable to own up to being an ungodly person, a sinner, an enemy of God, he cannot be saved. For this is exactly who Christ died for the ungodly, the enemy. And it's through this preaching of the gospel of grace, the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, Jesus taking the punishment that sinners, that enemies deserved. It's through this gospel that the Holy Spirit moves in such a way to awaken sinners to their sin and to the beauty and worthiness of Jesus Christ. He works in them repentance and humility as they come to him in faith, and he works in them that faith as he gives them a new heart. You see, unlike the man who can't make a woman love him, God can move in the sinner's heart in such a way that he begins to love God. And that's good news, isn't it, brothers and sisters? This is the good news of the gospel. Not that we could stir up any love for God within ourselves, but that God has removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of affection for him. In conversion, God comes to the hard-hearted sinner to the heart with no love in it, and he transforms it. He moves by means of the preaching of the gospel through the Holy Spirit to cause you to love him. That hap- when that happens, you become you have become a son or a daughter of God. And then your heart is truly enabled to begin loving God, to begin loving your neighbor, and even enabled radically to love those who seek to do you harm. Jesus says that by loving your enemies and by praying for them, you are demonstrating that you are indeed a child of God. Why? Because this reflects something of the beautiful and radical nature of God's love for his creation. For even for those who don't love him. Look at the example he gives. For he makes his son, his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now he could have said the sun rises on the evil and the good and the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but he doesn't. He says he makes it happen. He makes his sun rise on the good and the evil. He sends his rain on them. God is the sender of these good gifts. Have you ever considered this, brothers and sisters? The reason the sun rises in the east and sets in the west is not simply because it's just the way our world is ordered. The reason rain comes is not simply because so many water droplets collect together until they're too heavy and they must fall from the sky. The reason the sun rises each morning, the reason the rain falls to nourish the land, is because God is love. 
And he doesn't do this just for those who are worthy, but for the righteous and the righteous. The warmth of the sun, the nourishing rains, the cool breezes, the beautiful song of a robin, the taste of a delicious steak, the joy, kids, that you have in playing with your toys. You enjoy these things because God loves you, even though we don't deserve it. These are all the result of God's lavish love for sinners. When we love our enemies and pray for them, we reflect that undeserved goodness of God. But Jesus tells us how it does something else too. It also provides a stark contrast from the way our world typically works. Tax collectors and Gentiles were regarded regarded merely as godless and self-seeking. And who did they love? He says they love those who love them. They show kindness, yes, but only to those who show kindness to them. You scratch my back and then I'll scratch yours. And of course there are exceptions, but typically this is the way our world works. You love those who love you. Love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. For then you will shine as children of your heavenly Father and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus concludes this paragraph and really the entire section from verse 17 with this final command. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is an echo of God's words to his people in Leviticus 11.44. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. And in verse 45 of that same chapter, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see, it speaks to a distinction between the people of God, who are his children, and the people of this world. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching us, that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is worthless. It's all talk. There's no real substance to it. They pick and choose which commands that they will follow and make excuses for themselves. They distort the commands of God and actually make them easy to follow. But the scribes and Pharisees aren't the standard by which righteousness is measured. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God, the Father, is the standard of righteousness we must attain. And Jesus is calling his disciples to a righteousness which issues forth from a genuine heart of love for God and love for others. Peter shows us how to understand this call to holiness when he says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you as holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for i am holy so notice what peter does he connects the command with who they are in christ he writes his letter to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of god he connects their obedience to their identity these are those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They are being guarded by God's power, 
through faith. So you have to get the order right. Without the new birth, without a new heart, we will be just like the scribes and the Pharisees. But once God has caused us to be born again, we will be gradually growing in our reflection of the holiness and perfection of God our Father because the Holy Spirit lives within us. This command then shows us that human righteousness is insufficient and that God is the standard of perfection. We are reminded that if we are going to be in right relationship with God, we will do so only by His grace and the perfect righteousness that He provides us in Jesus Christ. This is where our hope is. Not in stirring up great affections for God and neighbor and enemy, but in recognizing we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us through faith because of God and His grace for His enemies. And then that moves us to begin growing. The Spirit produces fruit in us of love for Him and even for our enemies. And so I want us to consider then, what does this mean for how we pray for those who persecute us, for our enemies? And before I get to those specifics, though, I want to preface it with a couple of things. First, to love and pray for your enemies doesn't mean just allowing yourself to be harmed. Right? Evil people will twist the words of Jesus to get their way. But praying for your enemies includes praying for a way of escape, either for you or for others who are being harmed. And it includes trying to escape, if at all possible, All of us would say, I would think, that Christians suffering persecution somewhere in China, as we heard about uh, the Purdue's, should pray for their enemies, should pray for those who seek to do them harm, and yet they should also try to escape the harm being done to them. The same follows for those Christians who are in oppressive and abusive situations. Second, to love and pray for your enemies doesn't mean that injustice will prevail. You should pray for justice. You should pray that earthly justice would come to that evil, that they might be held accountable for their wickedness, and that the innocent would go free. And you should pray that if no earthly justice comes, that God would triumph in justice in the end. With those two things said, then, let me give you just three simple ways to pray for your enemies. How do we want to pray for our enemies? We want to pray like some of the Psalms, don't we? God, get them. Smite them in your wrath. I'm going to give you some different alternatives to that. First, pray for their physical needs. In other words, pray that they would have daily bread and shelter over their heads. Pray that they would have what they need to survive. That God would provide for them in abundance. For God causes the sun to rise over them and he sends the rain on them. Second, pray for their emotional and relational needs. Physical needs aren't all there are to this human life. Your enemy has emotional and relational needs. Pray that their relationships would grow and be healthy. Pray that they would experience love and companionship. Pray that they wouldn't suffer from strained and broken relationships. 
And third, pray for their spiritual needs. Do you see the, the angle I'm taking at this? We're, we're tempted to pray for things that we should. God, restrain their evil. We should pray for that. That's a part of spiritual needs. But as we come to these spiritual needs, this is where we can turn to those first prayers for their physical needs, for their emotional and relational needs. And we can turn them to the spiritual realm. Pray that God would take those good gifts of provisional Uh, of uh, physical provision and of emotional and relational blessing and that they would see the goodness of God and their hearts would melt in humility and repentance before God. I've I've had a friend tell me uh, regularly that he would pray for, uh, it was his daughter who was unconverted and rebellious, that he would pray, God, break her legs if she'll come to you. That seems like a very spiteful sort of prayer. And God can use that in his providence. I know his desire is right. God, please, whatever it takes to bring this person back to you. But why don't we pray blessing upon our enemies? This is, what God, this is how God responds to his enemies. And often he will melt their hearts in repentance and humility. Pray that their evil would be restrained, both for their sake and for the sake of others. Pray ultimately that they would turn from their wickedness and that they would embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Say, God, please, would you just take out their heart of stone and grant them repentance? Genuine repentance that they would turn from their sins against you and against God and that they would humbly receive Jesus by faith. And then you might say, but that is not fair. That's not fair that they could just go free. Wouldn't that mean that injustice has prevailed? How can they do all their wickedness only to receive forgiveness by coming to faith in Jesus Christ? And to that, I would say two things. First, we must say just because a person professes faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean they have been born again. Doesn't mean they have been regenerated. But those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit will increasingly produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Their lives will give the evidence that their profession of faith is genuine. But second, we must say that if a person truly has been regenerated, if they have truly repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, then injustice will not have prevailed. They may still suffer earthly consequences for their sins, and if they are guilty of crimes, they should suffer those earthly consequences. However, through their faith in Jesus Christ, they will not suffer the condemnation at the great day of the Lord. They won't have to pay for those sins before God. For their sins will have been paid for when Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And this is an uncomfortable truth, is it not? That anyone, regardless of what they have done, can be saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It is an uncomfortable truth. But it is at the same time a necessary one if any of us are going to be saved at all. If the grace of God in Jesus Christ is not enough for the worst of sinners, then it is not enough for the least of sinners. We all owe a great debt to God, unpayable 
by our own remorse or good works or any such thing, but it is a debt which has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. By his perfect life, he earned the favor of God. By his substitutionary death, he took the place of sinners. And as we sang last week, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can wash away my sins but the blood of Jesus. And when a person has been washed by the blood of Jesus, no matter how bad that person was, absolutely no stain remains. Brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in this truth this morning. That God has loved us with an unbelievable love and has given us His Son, Jesus Christ. That we would no longer be enemies, but that we would have a seat at the table of God in His family forever. Let us pray together.